John Keats, Ode to a Nightingale. John Keats is one of our youngest poets. His major career extended only from 1814 to 1820, or up until the age of 24. Keats died in 1821 when he was only 25. Some comparisons here are interesting. Chaucer hadn't even written anything at age 24, and Shakespeare had written only a few very early works by that time. What might Keats have accomplished had he lived longer? Today, his name might invoke all the prestige of Shakespeare, Milton, or Chaucer, or even more. Keats was born the same year, 1795, as Thomas Carlyle, the Victorian essayist, which is another good commentary on the arbitrariness of literary periods. Keats was the most working class of the Romantic poets, along with John Clare, who was even poorer. In fact, Keats was derisively called the Cockney poet by some critics. He was the son of a livery stable keeper. His father died when he was nine, and his mother, who had been in and out of his life and had disappeared at one point for four years, returned with consumption, which we know today to be tuberculosis, and she died when Keats was only 14. He was apprenticed for medical training and became an apothecary. A few words about the medical hierarchy of the time. Physicians were the most prestigious. They were the graduates of the College of Physicians. Surgeons were actually below physicians, which is quite different from the way they are regarded today. In Keats's time, surgeons set bones and did more routine medical work. Apothecaries were more than druggists. They were more or less the general practitioners of their day. Keats abandoned a medical career to write poetry. His first poetry was published in 1817. And throughout his short career, he used many forms and modes of poetry, including sonnets and Spenserian stanzas. As I mentioned earlier, conservative reviewers denounced him as the Cockney poet, revealing their class snobbery. But many liberals objected to his formal stylistics, his use of more formal poetic language, and his numerous mythological and literary allusions. This is sometimes read today as overcompensation for his more humble class origins and limited formal education. John Keats's brother Tom died of tuberculosis in 1818, the second member of his family. John's own health began to deteriorate not long after. When he had a lung hemorrhage in 1820, he said that he had read his death warrant on his handkerchief in consequence of his medical training. He died in Italy in 1821, where he'd been living for a few months in the hope that the milder climate would improve his health. Percy Shelley's poem Adonais is an elegy for Keats, whom he suggests was killed by hostile reviewers. We're going to look at Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, one of his more famous poems, but before we do that, I want to say a few words about one of his earlier poems. Keats's first published poem is a sonnet entitled On First Looking into Chapman's Homer, published in 1816. It reads as follows. 
Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one ex wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demen. Yet never did I breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Keats, unlike several of the other Romantic poets such as Shelley, didn't read Greek. So the first time he encountered Homer is in the 17th century George Chapman translation. I want to point out one particular line in the poem because it has been the focus of considerable scholarly debate for well over a century. It was the Victorian poet Alfred Lord Tennyson who first suggested that Keats's reference to stout Cortez seeing the Pacific Ocean for the first time was a mistake because it was Balboa and not Cortez who was the first European to see the Pacific. And this view has generally been held by many scholars since. In fact, it is sometimes regarded as evidence of Keats's limited education. More recently, though, a number of critics have argued that the Cortez reference was not a mistake, but was in fact intentional. According to this argument, Keats is using the Cortez reference as an analogy to his own experience as someone who experiences Homer in translation. Keats was first encountering Homer, who had been seen by others, just as Cortez is first seeing an ocean that others had previously seen, a path blazed by others before him. It's quite an interesting debate. Ode to a Nightingale is one of several of Keats's odes, all of which were written in a single year. It might be useful before we look at the poem itself to consider some of the mythology of the Nightingale and the story of Philomela. The story is told in Ovid's Metamorphoses. A king named Tereus raped his wife's sister and then cut out her tongue so that she could not tell what had happened to her. But Philomela wove her story into a tapestry, and when her sister Procne learned of it, she killed Tereus's son, who was also her own son, butchered him, and fed him to his father. Tereus was enraged and was going to kill the two sisters, but the girls were turned into birds, Procne into a swallow, and Philomela into a nightingale. The sorrow is supposed to be the source of the nightingale's song's beauty. And I might note here that the Philomela story is a recurring theme in much English poetry. Another excellent example is T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Ode to a Nightingale is a kind of trance poem in a genre that includes Kubla Khan, among others. In this poem, the senses are pushed to extremes. The speaker seems to lie on the boundary between waking and sleeping. The speaker is in search of an organic relationship with nature that transcends time. The first stanza reads, 
My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk. Or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute passed and lethe words had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. In the second stanza, Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth. Tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrine, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. This particular stanza has a lot of imagery of wine and much imagery of taste. The lines, tasting of flora and the country green and oh for a beaker full of the warm south are good examples of what is called synesthesia, of which Keats was fond. Synesthesia refers to the phenomenon in which a sense impression of one sense stimulates another sense. For example, some people actually see different colors when they hear different musical pitches or perhaps when they taste different foods. A small percentage of the population has one or more of these types of synesthesia, and it is believed by many scholars that Keats may have had some of these synesthetic responses because they are so common in his poetry. If you are interested, there are a number of videos on YouTube that explain synesthesia and attempt to represent the experience. In this second stanza, the speaker is thinking about the taste of wine and wants to leave the world unseen and fade away into the forest to join his consciousness with that of the nightingale. This continues in the third stanza. Fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret, here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. He wants to turn off his mind here, or at least that part of his conscious mind that is full of sorrow, the misery of humanity, what Wordsworth called the still, silent music of humanity. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. Here he is joining his mind with the nightingale through poetry, though, and not wine. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet 
wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming muskrose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. This particular stanza has much olfactory imagery, or imagery of smell. He has moved from the previous stanza, where there is no light, to this world of smell. That transitions into an image of sound, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves, that leads nicely into the next stanza. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Here he is looking at the song of the nightingale, which has no words, but is commonly regarded in English poetry as being ecstatic and particularly beautiful. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn. And here there is an allusion to the book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible, but the word forlorn brings him back to the world. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toil me back from thee to my soul's self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu. Adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades, past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Language, the word forlorn, brings him back to himself and the world. Keats often writes about this boundary between sleeping and waking, or between reality and the imagination. He does that in La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and he does it also at the end of The Eve of St. Agnes. Here, the speaker comes back to himself, but he is unsure whether he has had a vision or a waking dream, or whether he has been asleep in his little foray into the consciousness of the nightingale.